Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Wednesday, August 24th, we're studying Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32 through chapter 13, verse 18. Moses warns Israel against the danger of idolatry in the promised land, and he instructs them how to deal with it should it come up from a false prophet or from a family member or from an entire city. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Pastor Kuntz serves as pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Kuntz, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hey, it's great to be with you. So the reason we're going from 1232 to 1318 is because in the Hebrew text, this is all called chapter 13. In the Hebrew text, 13.1 is what we have as 1232. For anyone who's interested as to why the crazy divisions, that's why. So, <laughs> Pastor Pastor Kuntz, of course, those are not inspired. So, it, it seems that tw- what is 1232 in our text really functions to close out what we talked about yesterday and to introduce what we've got today. Right. It's a, a exactly. pretty, pretty common thing. Yeah. So, give us some context. Uh, what should we know about Deuteronomy? What's going on? What Moses has been talking about as we prepare to look at this text today? If you have Greek, but, but not Hebrew. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know that um, uh, the Deuteronomy just means second law. So the whole thing is a repetition or a summary of God's law, especially from Exodus and Leviticus, but also from Numbers. And it's being restated in valedictory fashion in the book of Deuteronomy, because at the end of this, God knows uh, if Moses himself does not have the same lively sense that he will go away after this in some fashion, die, be translated like Enoch, who knows at this point. So there's something valedictory and final and summarizing about the whole book. In addition to that, therefore, you have to consider who Moses is and why he's there. These are questions that are going to be answered, as I think we're going to talk about a little bit later today, I think definitively in the New Testament. But here they are open questions like, are we going to be able to keep this law? Because Israel has sworn and and will swear in the future, also after the death of Moses, that they will keep this law. So these are things to keep in mind, especially when you're reading the New Testament, because the entire series on Deuteronomy may seem, you know, I mean, certainly not to Pastor Apple, but but to some of the listeners, perhaps obscure or or odd. But the thing to remember is that when you're reading the New Testament, The New Testament's own setting for itself, as well as its references, as we're going to hear today, is the Old Testament, and especially the law of Moses. So there's really no better thing to study to understand the New Testament better or the rest of the Bible than the law of Moses. And Deuteronomy is a summary of that law of Moses as he looks forward to some kind of departure. 
Professor Harstad made the comment when we we talked at the very beginning of this series that the book of Deuteronomy is either quoted or alluded to by every single New Testament author. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so this book in particular is is very important for understanding the New Testament. And as you said, we're going to see some very direct references in our text today. Uh, just talking about that that first verse that we've got today, yeah. which is again 12:32 in our English translations, 13:1 in the Hebrew text. Moses says there, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. I I really do think that that helps to both wrap up the previous text to push us forward into this one and really, I mean, applies to the whole book. Just talk about that first verse to get us started. The idea of being careful to do something means that there is some danger that you would be careless with it for some reason. And the reason is supplied by the second admonition that you would neither add nor subtract. Because when we're talking about the knowledge of the law of God, what human beings like to do is either to take away from it, to treat it with less seriousness or less scope than it naturally has. Uh, Christians are especially prone to do that when non-Christians or or some majority that is non-Christian insists that the law of God is absurd or, or mean or evil, and that therefore the God who gives it is absurd or mean or evil. Or a temptation very common in church history, uh, you also see it in the Gospels with the Pharisees, is to add to the law of God, and therefore to substitute our ideas of what other people should do, especially other people, not just ourselves, mostly other people, should do, rather than what God would have them do. So you can see in those admonitions the care that the Lord is giving through the prophet Moses for watching not only what you do, but also your heart, that you would be careful to do it and that you would not add or subtract your own ideas uh, and take away from from God's law. The matter of subtracting from God's law, I think, is is pretty natural for us. As you said, it's sometimes when we're faced with criticisms from the law by by non-Christians about right. the law of God, like this is this is mean or it's too hard or you know, God's not being fair. Right? To subtract <laughs> from right. it, you know, seems like a pretty natural thing. The adding to it, I think, well, why would I want to do more things? It's not always about doing more things, but doing maybe different things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, especially and, and achievable you said, things. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, that's that was yeah, achievable things. You know, you, you you made the comment a lot of times we like to sub, to add things that other people have to do. But, <laughs> but right. sometimes we add the things that we know we can do. Right. Like, like the achievable things. Talk more about that. Well, you see it in the Pharisees because the Pharisees look good from the outside. So they're they're one of the best case studies in this. But it's a phenomenon that if you spend enough time in the church you will have seen. If you spend enough time even outside the church, you will have seen because human groups, especially when they have no knowledge of God's law, will instead replace it entirely with their own laws. So what that will mean is especially that outward performance, according to that law code, whatever it is, right? Um, It could be, you know, merit badges in a scout troop uh, as a silly example but it could be something as serious as you have to do this disgusting, horrible thing or this dishonest thing that we're all doing in order to be a good person, um, you know, at college, uh, or at your workplace, who knows? And what's going to happen there is that that will be achievable to the people who are in charge of the law code. It will not be achievable to everyone. And those people will therefore be treated 
as very distinct. And usually, if you look, especially at different world religions, simply as outcasts, because the law code set by that religion or the law code set in that workplace uh, or in that you know group of people, whatever it is, is not achievable by everybody. So if you can't achieve it, then you're out. And what's going to happen with God's law is that it's not only has a uniquely divine source, but also that this question of outward performance and achievability is going to be out of the question, as we'll see. But that will all play out later. Um, human law codes are generally immediately achievable, which is why they make certain groups feel so good <laughs> about them because they can actually get it done. Whereas, yeah. I mean, Moses himself has already disobeyed God in a way that will actually mean his death by striking the rock more times than God indicated. So the nature of God's law is just different, not only in who it comes from, but also in how it relates to human beings' ability to perform it entirely. Human law codes are always totally something you can get done, potentially. God's law will not function in the same way. Hmm. So the primary topic that chapter 13 addresses then is the matter of idolatry and, and where it might arise and how to deal with it. With this verse as the introduction, the matter of not adding, not subtracting to God's law, how does how does idolatry do those things? How does idolatry add and subtract to God's law? Idolatry adds, of course, objects of worship or persons to worship who are not the, the only true God. They also generally add uh, performance-based, you know, criteria that do not have to do with fear or love or trust in the true God and usually involve outward acts of piety. Um, you have to bow down in the mosque. Um, you need to wash uh, in a certain way before you enter the mosque. You need to walk around a temple a certain number of times. You have to wear holy undergarments to get into the Mormon temple, whatever it is. So there will always be additions. And where Christianity begins to lapse into paganism or never sufficiently came out of paganism, then you find these laws and, and codes multiplied uh, or, or born anew because man is always trying to lapse into paganism in his sinful flesh. Subtraction is involved in idolatry because you're actually declining the obligation to give wholehearted devotion to the only true God. And you want to kind of divide your attention, right? So it's idolatry is a kind of spiritual polygamy where you are meant to be married only to one person until death do you part. But you want to add on to that, um, you know, in some measure. So not everyone's syncretism <laughs> or idolatry is the same as anyone else's. Um, so maybe they want two marriages or they want a marriage and, you know, a nice relationship on the side or something, but idolatry subtracts, especially from the devotion and love that are due only to the true God. All right. With that introduction in mind, then let's take a look at what Moses says in chapter 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. 
You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death, because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery, to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. But you shall kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear, and never do, never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand, that the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you, as he swore to your fathers, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. That's the rest of our text for today. That's chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. So Pastor Kuntz, three pretty clear sections here. Right. First, a, a prophet or a dreamer. Second, a family member. And third, a, a city. All dealing with the matter of idolatry. There's some individual features to each one and some overlap between them. So let, let's start with the first one. The prophet or the dreamer of dreams. What's the what's the situation that Moses puts before them that they could encounter? It's something that is not mentioned in its origin necessarily in the, in the Old Testament, but it, you see it all over the place, and then eventually you will see God from time to time inspire true prophets, also even when, when Jerusalem is falling because of its idolatry. And that is that there are people who would speak for God. That's, I think, the best way to think about a prophet. Um, a dreamer of dreams is someone who will uniquely draw his authority to speak for God from his dream experiences, because there is scarcely a nation on earth that does not derive some some supernatural meaning from the content of dreams, right? For better or worse, right? But um, just a fact that it is that way. So what, what you're looking at, especially in Deuteronomy, is the forward-looking phrasing of the law. So when the law is first promulgated in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, it is meant to be put into practice. There, there are forward-looking things, 
but it's meant to be put into practice. In Deuteronomy, one thing you can see is not only that it's being repeated, like, okay, we, we know this, or we heard this, or it's good to hear this again, but that it is put, and you're going to see these things play out. So you will see false prophets arise in Israel, and the question will always be, do they know what it says in Deuteronomy 13? Are they carrying these things out, or are they accumulating for themselves, like Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, are they accumulating for themselves teachers to suit their own itching ears and to give them a nice scratch so that what they wanted is what the man speaking for God tells them. So that's nice when God does what you want. So this is something to remember is that Deuteronomy kind of hangs over the head of the rest of the Old Testament. And these you know, five initial verses of chapter 13 more than any other, because what the prophet says is what's going to be believed and, and known and kind of go for both king and people once they have kings. A, a prophet will tell them not to, but they will anyway. So what you want to see is, okay, when, when a prophet arises among them, how do they check that? How do they know that? And even when a prophet explicitly says, let's go practice idolatry, they're not going to follow this. <laughs> you know, it's going to be pretty rare that they're actually going to follow this advice. And we don't have, you know, that many examples um, of this happening. And, and, and when they do put a prophet to death, it will generally be a true prophet. So Jesus is That's going right. to say about the prophets, you know, um, it is not possible that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Or you have slain the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Well, why is that? Because what is prescribed Israel will do the very opposite. <laughs> so the true prophet will be killed. Stephen will be stoned to death for proclaiming the word of God in Acts. And the false prophets will prevail. And Deuteronomy yeah. is where I learn how wicked that is and how strange that is and how unnatural and horrible and rebellious that is. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is really striking. What I mean, it's amazing the the words that Moses puts into the mouth of this dreamer, false prophet. Let us go after other gods. What? Why would you think that's a good idea? I mean, <laughs> right. what what in the Old Testament up to this point, or the Book of Deuteronomy, makes you think that's a good idea? It is. It is striking that within, and I, this is in each one. Although, and there's no there's no quote marks in the in the Hebrew text, but in in this particular situation. The phrase that these gods are those which you have not known, it's a part of the prophets, the false prophets appeal. Right. Almost like, hey, look, here's something new. Yeah. Let's try this. And it it strikes me that, well, that kind of makes sense that it would be a part of the appeal here, even if it's not in the other places. That that appeal for something new, like, oh, we're we're bored with Yahweh and all he did. Let's try this new thing. That's maybe more appealing than than it we would realize at first. Yeah, there there are there are two things in idolatry that are especially notable and seen over and over again in one's own life and in the life of the sons of Israel and and in the lives of all sinners, and those are stupidity and ingratitude. So there there's a certain stupidity about idolatry that you are doing something so patently wrong. And which in many cases, you know, is wrong, right? Such that when Paul describes idolatrous sinners, he says they suppress the truth, right? So they, they know it's there and they kind of push it out of sight. They suppress the truth. So there's something really stupid 
about let us go after other gods. Oh, okay, yeah, sure, sounds good, <laughs> you know. But there's also this rank ingratitude, which is so reprehensible um, that you are that you are made by God, you are redeemed by the blood of Christ, and if you are Christian, that is, you are you are of God's Israel. You are you are one of His believers. You have been renewed by the Holy Spirit not to speak of those who have simply been created by him and, and redeemed by the blood of Christ, but do not yet believe those things, that there is this rank ingratitude that says, yeah, that, that was fine. I mean, that was nice. You know, um, as we record this yesterday, it was my birthday. So I got some presents and, um, you know, I, if I say, uh, you know, that was good, but do you have anything else for me? Or, you know, do you, <laughs> You want to give me something more? <laughs> um, there's something really kind of sick about that, and and yeah. just petulant and childish, and so that that is there in Israel's rebellion because rebellion is what it is. The the false prophet is really leading you for or in the name of or maybe is himself a false king. So Moses names this as rebellion against the Lord your God. His teaching of positive idolatry is a teaching negatively, you know, conceived of rebellion. And that has to be recalled because it also means that the authority of the Lord is, you know, is in question whenever something else is being taught. That's why the Lord is jealous for his people because his relationship to them is there's only one king here. He's monogamous. He's the only husband of his people. So if you want to bring someone else in, then what you're really teaching is rebellion against that exclusive and loving monogamy, that relationship that should just be him and his people. Now, every, everything you've said so far about what the false prophet or dreamer does has focused on the, the words that are spoken, which is where Moses directs the people particularly. And it's, it's worth noting that Moses says this prophet or dreamer of dreams may give you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder actually happens. Mm -hmm. And so the, the test is on the words that are being that's spoken. Right. That, that's a pretty important point. Yeah, and that, that's especially helpful when you're looking at non-Christian religions, because I think sometimes Christians, when they're thinking about non-Christian religions, sort of turn into rationalists for a second, and they're like, well, that didn't happen. You know, or, or this strange thing that's reported in Buddhism or, or Islam, well, that, that's not real. And that's definitely not the tack the Bible takes with the same problem. The tack the Bible takes is this is false teaching. Not that everything about it that has ever happened is unreal, but that its teaching is false. It's God or gods are false. And thus it, that's evil or that's wrong or that's whatever. But they don't take the tack of saying, you know, oh, that didn't really happen or, or whatever, because how do you even verify that? But also... What deceives human hearts is the wonder combined with the falsehood that they believe. So the, the thing that the Bible attacks is the falsehood, and then everything else flows from that. Yeah, and so we've got the, the falsehood in place here. You know, what is, what is this prophet saying? It's let us go after other gods. What about the, the aspect of the Lord testing his people within this? What, how is the Lord testing his people through the false prophet? The Lord is not, you know, he, he's not some sort of like equal agent. And then sometimes there are bad guys and then the bad guys come around and the Lord's like, oh, I don't know what to do. He's still the Lord. So even, you know, the devil 
who wants to tempt Job and to see whether Job will endure is under the Lord's control. Similarly, the false prophet's evil motivations and evil actions and evil words are his own responsibility, but his existence is not outside the Lord's control. So if the false prophet is a temptation for the weak, the false prophet is an occasion for wonderful testing for God's people so that they can actually discern afresh what the truth is. And you do see this play out in Israel's history and in the history uh, of the church since the uh, birth of Jesus Christ, that we often learn much better from our enemies what the truth is than we do from our friends, because our enemies force us to think about what the truth is. So Luther will say things like, you know, he gives thanks to the Pope for teaching him the truth, you know, because if I don't have enemies, how do I know what's right and wrong? I just kind of go through life. Everything's fine. When conflict occurs or when contradiction is said, then I have to stop and think, well, what is the truth? So the false prophet is an occasion of testing for God's people because his presence should force them back into his word. So, I mean, you've mentioned in the Reformation, things like the Augsburg Confession coming out of the Reformation, Mm -hmm. that comes from the Reformation because they were forced to clarify what does the scripture actually teach, or even the the creeds, similarly, when these these false teachings come up, they're forced back into the word, the true word, so that they might confess it more clearly. Right, exactly. Yeah, so this is an opportunity from the Lord when the false prophet comes to re-examine what he has actually said to listen to his words and not the words of the false prophet. How then to deal with the prophet, that false prophet or the dreamer of dreams? Moses has words to say about that too, but we'll pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking about Deuteronomy 13 with Pastor Adam Kuntz. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, August 24th. We're studying Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32 through chapter 13, verse 18 with Pastor Adam Kuntz. He is pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. Pastor Kuntz, prior to the break, we were talking about the false prophet or the dreamer of dreams who may be able to perform signs but is preaching idolatry. The Lord gives this as an opportunity to test his people that they might sharpen their faith in him to continue to walk in his ways and fear him, keep his commandments. 
There are consequences for the false prophet, for the dreamer of dreams. Moses is very blunt. He is to be put to death. Uh, talk about, and this, this is a, a recurring theme in all three of these situations, yeah. that the, the one who is leading others into idolatry, or in one case, a whole city, is to be put to death. Why the harsh consequences? And then how does that come into the church today? This is one of the things I, I think Christians sometimes struggle with, yeah. and certainly will sometimes get lobbed as accusations against Christians as to this happening in the Old Testament. What do you do with that, Christian? What you do with it is you recognize, first of all, that this is God's prerogative. Uh, the objection by non-Christians to things for which the law of Moses levies the death penalty is lodged, first of all, in non-Christians' rebellion in themselves against the God who gave the law of Moses. So if you do not recognize his prerogatives as God, then of course you will object to what he says his prerogatives entail for our lives and for the lives especially of those who break his law. If you do recognize that it is his prerogative to do what he will because he is God and we are not, then you have to be astounded by the relatively limited range of things for which he does prescribe the death penalty in Old Testament Israel. Hmm. Uh, it's limited compared to many societies, especially even our own, uh, as recently as 100 years ago or 150 years ago. Um, there isn't necessarily a death penalty for horse stealing, as there was uh, in England in colonial days, our colonial days. So what you see is that the death penalty is prescribed in the law of Moses generally and here specifically for infractions that destroy, uh, eviscerate, not only uh, are somehow trespasses against this law, there are other ways to atone for sins under the law of Moses. There's the provision of the sacrificial system to make sure atonement is obtained for all in Israel who, who trust his word. The death penalty is there, especially when there is not simply an infraction or a transgression. There is utter destruction of something key. So there is the death penalty here for blasphemy. There is the death penalty in another place for the destruction of the family through reviling one's own parents. And the rationale for these things is that certain infractions are worse than others. Certain transgressions step farther than others in destroying something key, something central, something essential to human life, whether the way that we know who God truly is or the way that our lives are constituted by the families we come from. So when those things are destroyed by someone's transgression, then he himself must be destroyed. It's another question to say, okay, well, how does that come into today? You can you can say, okay, that's how that happened in the Bible. How does this come into today? The law of Moses is not a prescription or like a constitution or a code or a set of regulations for everyday life in modern America or in Texas or Colorado or anywhere else. The law of Moses has functioned throughout, especially Western history, as a way of uh, thinking about what matters and what doesn't. One thing that you can see is that no Christian really debated until relatively recently whether the death penalty was okay at all, um, because there was a recognition that some transgressions are worse than others on the basis of both 
the Mosaic law and natural law, and therefore some things need to be punished by death because a person cannot go on living in the society of men after having done this or that, usually murder um, the abuse of children and, and similar infractions, right? Um, so the law of Moses here is not prescriptive for us, but it is God's prerogative, and it does reflect his will, uh, especially in this idea that certain things are far more destructive as crimes than others. Well, it's probably worth pointing out that the last part of verse 5, you shall purge the evil from your midst, which is given here in the context of capital punishment. Right. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 5 in the context of, of excommunication, but not capital punishment. That's right. Talk about how, how Paul uses this verse. Yeah, and that and that's really helpful because what you can see, and Paul does that with that verse um, in, in the context of putting out of the Christian congregation the man who is sleeping with his stepmother. And he does it with, you should pay your pastor later on in 1 Corinthians by uh, quoting, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And he says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? And what you can see there is that Paul learns to draw not only some sort of literal lesson, which doesn't apply to the Corinthians because they live in one of the bigger cities in the ancient world and probably don't have oxen running around everywhere all of the time. Um, but to draw out of the law of Moses principles that generally apply. That is, if someone's working for you, laboring in the gospel, then you should support him as you make sure that you feed your ox when he's helping you with the harvest. If someone is destroying the community by his presence, take him out of the community. Notably, Paul doesn't say the Christian congregation should do exactly what Old Testament Israel did because the church in New Testament times is not also a state as it was in Old Testament times in ancient Israel. We are not a state, so we don't exercise capital punishment. We don't exercise judicial oversight for thieves or you know, whatever else. The church, however, can take the principles from these things and say, if we have someone in the congregation that is destroying the congregation by his actions, we need to put him out as the false prophet or the dreamer of dreams was put out by death in that case, not by excommunication was put out of Israel. So that takes us then into the second situation, beginning in verse 6. Moses lists a variety of family members, your brother, your son, your daughter, even your wife or your friend who has as your own soul. If this person were to entice you into idolatry, what what's the temptation here in this second situation? The temptation and God's law is so prescient with us because God knows that our temptations are often keenest when they are nearest to us. That if some stranger comes up to you and says, uh, let us go serve other gods, you know, you say, who am I talking to? You know, what, <laughs> um, you know, like uh, you know, Star this, Wars, you, you want to buy some death sticks? Right. Like yeah. And Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah. 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 I mean, right. it's like, I don't know what you're Total doing. Stranger. Like, yeah. This is a Wendy's drive through. You're like, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> um, so it's like, it, like nobody cares. You're, you're most tempted, especially when it's someone near you. And as to this matter of adding and subtracting from the law of God, I mean, I see this in people's lives where yeah. they especially want to subtract if a family member would be benefited by subtraction. Yeah. So, you know, this happens a lot with questions about marriage and divorce and, oh, you know, my grandson is gay, whatever that means. Let's subtract from the law so then my grandson is not condemned by the law 
and I don't feel condemned or I don't feel guilty because this is how my family turned out, whatever the case may be. I totally get that. God understands that that's how it is with us, that certain people matter more to us than others. So if those people who matter more to us are the ones enticing us to say, you know, let's let's chill out on this whole, you know, this is the only God, this is his word, blah, 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 blah. Let's get some other standards, some other perspectives, some other gods. And then life just feels more manageable and it feels easier or it just makes more sense because other people are doing this, especially people we love and people we already care about. So in the same way that a prophet has a certain peculiar authority, so you would be inclined to follow him, your family members particularly or your best friends have a peculiar authority in your life and you are inclined to follow them. So God says specifically, if those people who have this peculiar hold on you say this, don't follow them. Listen to their words. There's also an issue here of you're being taught to evaluate people according to what they say and then do in a, rather than how you feel about them. And that's hard. That's really hard. But you are being trained by this passage, especially to do that, that you can't think of them just as, well, I, but I really, I mean, I love him or I really like that guy or she's so great. She has a wonderful personality. Again, it's kind of like the, the miracles of the false prophets. That might all be true. Like the lady that's saying to you, let us go after other gods. It might just be like the best, just most fun person to be around ever. Like just great, like much better personality than the lady that is angry at you that you're sitting in her pew on Sunday. Right. Just fantastic. Right. Yeah. That doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah. It matters for your feeling of closeness or your warmth to this person, but it doesn't matter if that wonderful, bubbly, fantastic person says, you know, I let's let's go after other gods or let's live in a way that reflects that we're going after other gods. Mm, yeah, I mean maybe this is the reason then while while the the penalty of death in the first situation is certainly harsh, when you look at the response that Moses describes in this section before you get to the death, he he heaps it on. You know, yeah. you shall not yield to him. Right. Don't listen to him. Your eye shouldn't pity him. You shouldn't spare him. You're not going to conceal him. I mean, all of those temptations that maybe are bound up to in the feelings toward this person, Moses just layers it on and on. Don't yield to any of that. Stick with what God's word says. He does. And I mean, he himself has dealt with these things, right? So if you if you remember these things about Moses, his sister wanted to stage a rebellion. His brother led Israel into idolatry. And then his nephews, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire and were killed by the Lord for it. So Moses is not dealing with a set of circumstances that are utterly strange to him. And I, I think that's important to remember both for oneself right? For oneself or to remember that Jesus Christ is like us in every way, except without sin. So he understands what being a human being is like. It's not, it's not as if the eternal God is like, here, do this. I don't know how to do it. My, he's not like a boss that says, uh, you guys do this. And he has no idea. He just is being harsh with you about stuff you need to do, even though he could never do it, right? I mean, he himself actually keeps the law perfectly. This law, God's law. And he knows what it is like to be a human being. So he understands, for example, it's hard when your family rejects you because you're sticking to God's word over your family. I mean, 
his family came looking for him because they thought he was crazy at one point. So it's not as if Moses or God himself are just utterly, you know, these things are foreign to them and they're just asking you to do stuff. They have no concept. You know, they don't know what you've gone through, especially when you want to subtract from God's law. One of the easiest ways to do that is to convince yourself that nobody would really understand and and you're the only person that's ever gone through this kind of difficulty and and therefore you can subtract because your situation is unique and that's as much of an illusion as anything in most people's lives that what you go through many people have and what you go through Christ actually knows okay knows family conflict whatever else he knows it and so I think that's always important to remember when you're reading the Bible, especially God's law in the Bible, is that these things are not alien to God or unknown to him or just kind of a random code that he handed down and he didn't even read what he himself is telling you to do. Mm, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the example from the Gospels of, of where Jesus actually faces this very situation where it is his own family who thinks he's crazy. And and he responds truthfully with the word of God about yeah. who his family actually is, who his brothers, his sisters are, which is, I mean, I suppose just thinking through what Jesus says there does provide strength for us as Christians, not only in seeing how Jesus himself knows what this is like, has gone through it. But then in the family that is the church in which he gives us, there too is is strength when it is our own uh, family, according to bloodline, according to genealogy, that, that we're faced with this situation. Having the family of the church there provides strength. And that I suppose that family of the church is, is brought up here when it comes to the matter of whose hands uh, throw the stones. Your hand shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people that... Now, th this is incumbent on the church, right? Is that the church is not just there for a person to come to. It is also there for a person to live in, right? And not just the building, obviously, but with the people of God, with all the other people of God. So something to see here is that Israel is actually expected, as Paul expects the Corinthians in the case of excommunication or lawsuits or whatever, to know about each other's lives, and to help each other uphold what God says. Yeah. Like, you have to, okay? And yeah. if that's not happening, obviously, this is all going to fall apart. So it's interesting to consider, for example, where the family leads people astray, because we said, this is predictive, you're going to see these things afterward in the history of Israel, is that you're going to see, for instance, Jezebel lead King Ahab astray, right? Or you're going to see Solomon's wives lead Solomon astray. And the significant thing there is that once they have a king, now they have somebody who's kind of immune from criticism. Because if some guy in a village, you know, I don't know, he's in what a Kiriath Jearim, okay? And, and you know, his, his daughter is beginning to worship foreign gods. And he's like, hey, we got we to gotta look at Deuteronomy 13 here. You know, maybe this is a problem. He's just some guy. And that it's easy for the village to uphold a standard against, uh, you know, some lady. It's really hard to critique a king or to uphold a standard against his queen, right? Or hit multiple queens in the case of Solomon. Similarly, it's really hard for the church, obviously, if we don't know each other, 
to actually uphold God's word in each other's lives and to help each other do that, right? In the way that the people help uh, the, the, the relative who has been enticed by idolatry to carry out the sentence on the idolater. So we have to know each other, but then we also have to realize that everyone is under the judgment of the word of God. And it's no, it, it's no surprise that Israel is generally led into idolatry or brought out of idolatry every once in a while. Josiah, Hezekiah, Israel is generally led into idolatry by its king because that's the guy who is not going to be subject to the word of God and subject to the community trying to make him uphold the word of God. So when Israel does fall into idolatry, it's generally going to be through its most prominent members, what like Ezekiel, for example, it's going to call it shepherds. Uh, when those shepherds fail, when the leaders fail, everything goes. Mm. The the situation that Moses references here and the family members that he lists sound very similar to some of the ways that Jesus speaks in the gospel about those who should follow him. And in yeah. and, and Luke 14, you know, it's very, very poignant when he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and all the way even to his own life, right. he says he cannot be his disciple. I mean, how do, how do those words tie into what Moses says? How do we those are strong words. What do those look like in our lives? Those look like what you are willing to sacrifice for something else. So the reason that your family members can be a test of your of your actual love of God or uh, an exposure of your idolatry is because they force a choice when they begin to entice you through their actions, through their words, through their lives, whatever to some sort of devaluation of God's word to some kind of idolatry. And that means, therefore, that when we're talking about hating your family, we're not saying like you sit there and you're like, oh, I don't like the way they, you know, whatever, the way we do things at Christmas time. And I'm, I don't like what my sister says about me and, you know, whatever these kinds of, I mean, stupid family conflict, like every family has to some degree or another. Um, they don't, they don't mean that you know, or, or a nourishing of, you know, petty human arguments. That's not, that's not what Jesus means by hate your own father and mother. What he means is that compared to your love of God, you hate everything else, right? The love hate thing that, that pairing in scripture, uh, you know, Jacob, I have loved, but Esau, I have hated is never about just some pure, like emotional rage, the way we think about hatred, you know, random, uninformed, prejudiced, whatever, irrational. Hatred is always compared to love and it expresses the difference, the vast difference between the one that you love and anything else, whatever else is named as hated. So compared to the love he shows to Jacob, God hates Esau, even though he does bless Esau in other ways, especially with a kindness and a kind reception of Jacob when they finally reconcile. Compared to God, the only God, I hate everything else, including even my own father and mother. I mean, and it's kind of horrible to say those words out loud, right? Because I don't hate them in that kind of human way that I outlined earlier. But it's always an issue of comparison. And it's an issue of comparison because especially when you have these situations where the family is leading you away from Christ, you must hate the family for the sake of loving Christ. 
Yeah, yeah, hard words, but again, necessary words, lest, as, as Moses brings out, lest you be led away from the God who saved you. I mean, this is what's at stake. That's right. Yeah. Is the faith, faith in the God who saves you. Let's, we've got about seven minutes here. I want to make sure we spend at least a little bit of time on this final situation where the idolatry has infected a whole city, some yeah. worthless fellows. <laughs> some worthless uh, t- fellows. Yeah, that's right. Talk about the the situation in a whole city that Moses brings up. So the worthless fellows are, they're not necessarily prophets. They don't have that kind of authority or sort of personal, what we might even call charisma. They don't even have a necessarily a nearness to you that the family does. And so the procedure is interesting because they're saying the same message, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. But they're doing it to a whole city at once. And the idea here is that in the same way that uh, there's supposed to be a certain integrity to Israel or an integrity to the family, that they're not characterized by idolatry. Similarly, the city should have a certain integrity where the city is not characterized by idolatry. And what, But what's interesting about this when they're kind of far away from you or their message is not as distinct or as powerful as a prophet's, that in verse 14, you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And the reason for that is similar to the reason for Abraham's intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah, which is that entire cities can be punished for the sin of the falsehood and the idolatry promoted inside of them. Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh, and the book of Nahum, Jerusalem, both in the Old Testament and then predicted and then fulfilled uh, by Jesus in the Gospels. So cities actually uh, are corporately responsible, as also in other places in the Old Testament nations are. So what you want to do here in verse 14 is establish that this is actually true, because like Abraham, you want to make sure, like if there are some righteous here, that God preserves the city. If the, if there are none, then the city is destroyed. And what gets described here as a judicial process in Israel, in Deuteronomy 13, is precisely the thing that Israel will do to the Ammonites and Amalekites and Hivites and, and, and Jebusites and everyone else when they come into the land, beginning in Joshua. And so you can see that that destruction that is wrought by Israel in the the conquering of Canaan is, from God's perspective, a punishment for idolatry. They receive the sentence that any Israelite city who does likewise is supposed to receive here according to Deuteronomy 13. Now the the judgment that the city received once that judicial process has gone through, and yes, indeed, this is a, a city that has fallen into idolatry. It's to be devoted to destruction. I mean, it's a complete wiping out. Yeah. No one is to rebuild it again. It's going to stand as a heap forever. You don't take anything with you. You know, I mean, it's striking how this gets reversed in the book of Joshua yeah, with Achan right. and his mm-hmm. sin. Uh, I mean, again, we got about four minutes yeah. to help us wrap things up here. There's so much that we could talk about. Uh, help us to wrap it up. The sin of Achan is a, is a good place to go because it, it shows you a couple of different things. One is that Israel will be judged by the same law as everyone else. The sadness of Israel is that they could have known better than anyone else because God clearly showed his law to them 
more clearly than anyone else. And so that they did not find the righteousness that they needed from that law, though unlike the Gentile nations, they had it published to them more clearly than anyone else. Because in each of these cases, we have been able to find examples where false prophets existed in Israel, family members enticed to idolatry in Israel, and they let some of the plunder from the city that was supposed to be devoted to destruction, in the words of Deuteronomy 13, to stick to their hands. And then they hid it, and it began to destroy all of Israel until they found out who was doing the stealing there in Joshua. So this shows you that the law is both clear and that the law condemns equally all who transgress it. So that you're not supposed to find much hope, although you can find a framework for laws, as I mentioned earlier, has happened throughout Western civilization. You can find a framework for justice. You can find a framework for inquiring diligently when you think something might be the case. You can find lots of helpful admonition for everyday life. You cannot find life everlasting here because it's only available to those who actually keep it. And as we watch Israel try to live with this law of Moses, or we watch people try to add or subtract from the Bible today, you'll see that what they're trying to do is live by a law that they can actually keep. And the problem is they can't actually keep and therefore cannot live through by means of God's law. So then with, with about a minute here, Pastor Coons, with, with that rather hopeless situation, it sounds like, <laughs> how does this chapter get us to Christ? Or, or where, where do we get to Christ from here? Well, Christ is the one who doesn't do any adding or subtracting. And he actually says that if you add or subtract, uh, you will be reckoned least in the kingdom of heaven, not only with law, Moses's law, but with the Sermon on the Mount or anything else that he teaches, explaining so well the meaning of this law, the meaning of God's will. Since he doesn't add or subtract, he instead just fulfills. And he makes it uh, possible to have life by giving his life for ours. Um, by putting himself in the place of the one who should be punished and done to death. So this is a glorious thing that instead of adding or subtracting, he actually does what is required of Israel. And in doing that, and in being who he is, we can find life, not in the law, but in him. The Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz is pastor and evangelist at Trinity Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado, helping us today with Deuteronomy 12, verse 32 through chapter 13, verse 18. Pastor Kuntz, thanks for being our guest Great. today. Thank you so much. Idolatry is dangerous. Moses rightly warns against it. He rightly warns us against it. Only Christ, the one who has fulfilled these words for us, is our Savior. Cling to him, dear Christians, with all you are. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>